hear me. Hello? Can y'all hear me now? Let me know. I just spent a lot of time. A lot of time. Oh my gosh, this has been an absolute nightmare of a day with all of this stuff. All right, now people can hear me. Amazing. I just <laughs> spent a lot of time. There's a lot of echo. For real? There's a lot of echo. Help me out, guys. Help me out. Um, okay. Holy shit. <laughs> All right. I don't even know where to begin because I've been on for 20 minutes. Literally talking that whole time. That is so frustrating. I mean, already, already, I, I can't, I can't. I'm, I have to, I'm going to reach out to Colin right after this. I, this is really frustrating for me. It's been like this, you know, there's always something coming up with it, with this app for me. Um, anyway. Okay. So, you know what? I actually think that we should just get to calls because I have been talking about the censorship. Um, I don't have all the time, you know, I, I probably need to stop. I start at five fifteen. I pro- I need to start stop in probably thirty minutes. Um. Okay. So, yes, the Twitter ban. Thank you. I'll just let you know that I woke up this morning and I was locked out of my Twitter account. So, when I tried to click on the message, when I tried to screenshot the message, I... um, and like my finger touched the screen and it was gone. And then I got a different message without the timeline. But the first message I got said, I'm banned for seven days. I need to delete the tweet. And then the countdown starts. And then just because I had hit, you know, like a touch screen, hit your finger on the screen, it was gone. And then I got a more vague message saying that I need to delete the tweet. And my account is locked. Now, if all of you have Twitter and you all listen to your favorite podcasters, whoever they are, anti-war podcasters, you know, lefty podcasters, just tag them. There are some people who I'm getting messages from saying that I'm back on Twitter and I'm not. I've been emailing folks. Even when I was talking with Margaret over email, Margaret Kimberly, she thought I was back on Twitter. No, you can go to my account, but I'm sure the first thing you'll see is that there's a tweet that's been deleted, which is the thread on Tiananmen Square, because I retweeted it late last night. You'll see it say this tweet violated Twitter rules, and you'll probably be able to see all my prior tweets, but I can't get into it. Uh, I had a comrade, a colleague, comrade of mine, Carlos Martinez, send me what this looks like and and my wife has a twitter account that she just kind of browses with and i she also i was also able to see that but i can't get in so my thread on tiananmen square locked me out for a week i'm still deciding whether i need to delete the tweet i didn't appeal but I've been through this before. This is my second time being locked out of my account on Twitter. The first time was 12 hours, and it was because of something I said to Keith Olbermann in a reply. And Twitter either flagged it for no damn reason, or someone, or I had it reported by some shit lib um, who got offended by, um, yeah, who got offended by like. Uh, something I said. Oh, I, they, they attacked. Long story short, Keith Oberman attacked Wyatt Reed, calling him a whore for dictators. I came back and said, 
or how does it feel to be a whore for a Monopoly Capital or something like that. And then I got, I was the one who got the, the axe for 12 hours. And this is my strike two. So once I, um, once I get another report, so I'll probably come back in a week once I delete this tweet. But once I come back, um, I only have one more strike and I think they're going to permanently suspend me. And there are just so many trolls out there And Twitter itself is basically a, a, a troll and monopoly capital form. So either Twitter is going to flag me eventually again for something I say probably about China or it's going to be one of these trolls, bots or whatever that are obsessed with uh, my politics about China and they obsessively follow me and then report me. And I also get a lot of emails. I also don't, um, I also don't get, um, oh, and and, you know, I see someone in the chat that you get a lot of reports and it's not three strikes that you know of. Um, I think it is if you get, if the crime that you've committed is worthy of some kind of suspension or lock or, or locking out or whatever. At least that's how I feel given that um, the punishment has constantly like gone up every time I get uh, reported and there's some sort of consequence. But I've gotten a lot of reports and they say no. So anyway, that happened. It happened over a thread I did over Tiananmen Square, the truth about Tiananmen Square, the fact that there wasn't any violence on Tiananmen Square even during the protests. They were actually mainly peaceful on the square. PLA soldiers sat with protesters. There was a lot of lively discussion. The protesters were very uh, 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 multidimensional and diverse. And unfortunately, there were U.S.-backed forces pushing the most extreme ideas, pushing even violence and actually conducting violence. You had George Soros's money, a million dollars, which in that time was not just a lot of money, but especially a lot of money in China, which barely had industry at this point. And so uh, you had uh, uh, his NGO pouring money into the protests. You had the National Endowment for Democracy pouring money into the protests in a group called the Beijing Workers Autonomous Federation. Uh, This group actually was responsible for a lot of violence, or at least uh, they claimed that they were at the center of the unrest. I even found a Voice of America article later that I didn't get to even put in the thread that shows where they literally admit that one of the leaders of the Beijing Workers Autonomous Federation went on to found a group that was funded by the National Endowment for Democracy and called the China Labor Bulletin to start unrest in Hong Kong. So there's even connections between the unrest that happened in Tiananmen Square uh, or in and around the Tiananmen Square incident and uh, the Hong Kong protests of 2019. So, I mean, there are all these links, right? Uh, But I, I basically, all I did was show one, that the mainstream media, the Western media, had many different articles from Reuters, BBC, the New York Times that showed that there wasn't actually any violence on the square, that there was no quote-unquote massacre, despite the literally thousands of other articles that have been written in Western media saying there were thousands of people who were being killed at that time. I talk about Tank Man being a big distraction. I was talking about in the silence that Tank Man actually wasn't hurt. If you watch the full video, (coughs) which I have on my Instagram, actually, um, so you can look me up, Danny Haifong on Instagram, uh, and you can find the thread screenshot there. But, uh, if you look at the full video, Tank Man wasn't hurt. He was, I don't know what he was doing, but he was kind of blocking the tank, the line of tanks from being able to go around him. He eventually climbed on the tank, spoke to the person who was manning the tank and then got off and was eventually whisked away, whisked away, uh, by, neighborhood people in the neighborhood so that's all that happened there was no violence but yet this tank man situation scenario even though it was after the day after this the Tiananmen Square protests uh, or at least uh, when the protests were dispersed uh, 
he's become a quote unquote iconic image of so-called authoritarianism and repression and of like standing up to it. And so uh, we always have to note it and, and talk about how, yeah, propaganda is vital to these color revolutions. It's vital to uh, this cold war because it was a cold war move. I mean, this was a cold war policy, right? What the United States was trying to do here was through a lot of things, right? The U S ambassador to Beijing, Right after the general secretary of the Communist Party died, like a week later, the U.S. ambassador to, 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 to Beijing, to China, was named. And it was James Lilly, who was CIA. And immediately you started having uh, these protests, right? And there was a lot of indication that the CIA had a role in some capacity. This makes it a very sensitive issue in China. So I'm not surprised because... Uh, you know, this could have escalated to a level of in, uh, of a color revolution and trying to bring about the fall of China, just like the United States and the West had been spurring color revolutions to help facilitate the fall of the Soviet Union. That was ultimately the goal here. And it's quite clear that by ignoring Reuters, BBC, New York Times, right, these kind of singular pieces that tell the truth, CBS... And also ignoring, right, the whole Western media, except for the Telegraph in the UK, ignored the WikiLeaks cable, which showed a Chilean diplomat and his family had actually seen that there was no violence on the square and that students were coming and going as they please, right? All of this goes against the mainstream narrative and it goes against the ultimate objective. And there was violence in China. There was violence in Beijing at that time. And a lot of it was conducted by what is thought to be the U.S.-backed forces, okay? The U.S.-backed forces, the, the, these kind of soft power forces. Um, and 200 to 300 people died. 200 to 300 people died. And half of them were soldiers and police. There's really gruesome pictures of a soldier was lynched and, and kind of skinned and burned alive on his vehicle. A lot of vehicles were burned uh, by the so-called protesters, and these weren't really the protesters. These were really insurrectionists. I mean, these, uh, these were violent forces that were seeking to... Uh, and, and a lot of people, you know, because a lot of people, they, they want to take the revolutionary rhetoric, right? They want to act like that they are causing some kind of conflict that will overthrow an unjust government. But really, all they were doing was creating chaos and selling chaos for chaos's sake in order to bring about instability at the behest of uh, imperialists, right? That's, that's what color revolutions really are. They're never actually about revolutionary aims or ideals. And that's because even at this time, right, although reform and opening up, and at this period, there was there were some there were definitely economic difficulties, the whole world the whole socialist world was going through a lot of economic difficulties at this time. There's a lot of seismic change happening around the world. And uh, it was affecting China, right? It was affecting China. Prices were going up. Uh, there was hardship, especially for intellectuals, which as a class tend to, when there are hardships and there have to be sacrifices made, they tend to be... Uh, easily swayed to maybe do things and protest in ways that aren't necessarily helpful, that aren't about like bringing about um, transformative change or even uh, a progressive change, right? So that was happening in China. However, it's nothing like a quote-unquote massacre. And so my thread just hit on these points, right? Hit on these points and really just sought to tell the truth. And that's what was deemed to be a threat to Twitter. So earlier in this episode, I shared my telegram. I don't know if you saw that because you could not hear me. So it's all the way at the bottom, I believe, of the chat. But I will share it again because that's where I am going to be... um, that's where I'm going to be posting. You know, when I'm on Twitter, of course, I'll be posting there. But 
I think I've got to get out of the, I have to get out of the, um, the Twitter space in, in terms of just, you know, cause I have the most followers there. I had like 39.6 or something, uh, you know, that was built out of hard work. And so I'm realizing more and more that at any given moment, that's gone, that could be gone. So I am going to be investing a little bit more time in Telegram. And so I'm going to share that here. Um, and somebody, Big Teal asked if I could allow responses. I could when I find out how to do that. But nonetheless, please do follow me on Telegram as I figure out how to use that platform because I honestly have just started really. So uh, that's really that. Um, you know, I kind of expected that this might have happened when I saw, especially those who were quote tweeting, you had a lot of re- Ukraine flags, a lot of anti-China f- bots, and, and what's a lot of which seem to be fake accounts. But maybe if they, even if they were real accounts, they were ultra reactionary, not serious. They really just sought to cause trouble. And uh, they were kind of insinuating when I looked at the quote sheets that this would happen, that they would be reporting. So I've been reported and they were successful in locking my account. So I spent most of the day today not able to really prepare for this episode, but I did want to just talk about Twitter censoring the truth, right? Censoring the truth about the situation. And it's really relevant to the new Cold War because Tiananmen Square is maybe a relic of the old Cold War, but it comes up every single year as a talking point of also, also the new Cold War. And even before the new Cold War maybe formally started, right, in whatever, 2012, 2006, wherever people want to point to, okay, this is where the United States ratcheted up its antipathy and antagonism toward China. Even before then, it was a talking point, right? It was, this is, this is how you know that the United States was never actually a so-called ally of China, right? China wanted to cooperate economically, was able to succeed in building a really robust economic relationship. But the United States always had China as, penned as a potential enemy and threat and an actual enemy and threat because of its uh, leadership, its political leadership, its political system. And so even when China-U.S. relations were at their best, right, uh, what sometimes is called the wild 90s, for example, right after Tiananmen uh, Square, even then U.S. administrations were, were talking about China as, need, as needing to, as they cooperate with the United States, going the path of so-called Western democracies. So this was never a partnership that respected China's sovereignty or self-determination. It was always a, a relationship that the United States hoped would lead to China's demise. And when, and it's my estimation that a lot of the reasons why there's so much antipathy now toward China is because the United States realized circa the the end of the war on terror as the Obama administration was calculating that that, uh, you know, that that effort, that that geopolitical strategy was one that needed to go on the back burner, even if it was going to continue in some form, that it could not be the primary strategy, that after review, it was calculated and concluded that no, China's not going to go the way of Western-style democracy. That uh, China is not going to allow privatization to run roughshod over their society. That China is going to maintain control of its financial institutions, its political institutions, and that it's going to continue economic development in a manner that while maintaining and even growing a private sector in consumer goods, that it was always going to protect the commanding heights of the economy so that both the socialist governance system was protected and a capitalist class couldn't emerge, but also so a socialist economy could be protected through a state-owned industries in very 
key areas so that planning could continue to occur so that when a pandemic emerges, there is public health infrastructure, that there is mobilization that is capable of happening. So when there are goals that need to be met, like raising the standard of living and defeating extreme poverty, that they can't happen without the interference of foreign corporations and banks and, and whatnot getting in the way. So once that hap- once that was realized, then you had the new Cold War. That's that's really how I see it. And I think that Tiananmen Square and the narrative around it has been so propagandized in order to feed feed all the propaganda, the anti-communism, the racism, the jingoism from the first Cold War into this new Cold War seamlessly. So that uh, the objective of bringing China to heel, to use the words of Hillary Clinton, continues unabated. But nonetheless, I want to get to calls, everyone. I want to get to calls uh, because I spent a lot of time talking while silent. I would love to hear from you all to just uh, discuss whatever you all want to discuss. I, ha- I have not seen anyone uh, get in the queue just yet, uh, but I do want to hear from you. I'll probably stay on until about 6.15 p.m., 6.15 p.m., maybe a little bit longer, just so um, when I'm editing this and I edit out the silent parts of this episode, they get, hopefully, uh, that get, gets rid of all of that dead time. And I still qualify as a full episode. So, yeah, what's going on, everyone? Um, I would love to hear from you. I don't see anyone yet in the queue, but sometimes there is a lag. And if there's nobody that wants to talk, that's okay too. I can continue to go on um, if that's what you all prefer. But uh, yeah, I'd I'd love to hear from you, what you're thinking, not just about this topic or this issue, but whatever's on your mind. Uh, I am available for questions. So, I don't see anybody um, in the queue. But then again, did I... Let me see. Okay. Yeah, now you can call in. All right. Um, I don't see any callers just yet, so I will continue... Yeah, so, you know, I was really motivated to talk about Tiananmen Square uh, for many different reasons, but uh, the big reason for me is that, you know, it's one of these, it's one of these issues that I think has such a prominent and important influence over our capacity to challenge the dominant narrative on China and on global politics, right? Because Tiananmen Square, it's so based in mythology that it it couldn't be any more or anything other than a weapon to, to forward uh, the most egregious crimes, right? The most egregious geopolitical aims. And and we, I think, have to be uh, very attentive and aware of that uh, because it's so easy to fall into the trap of, oh, well, Tiananmen Square actually was a bad thing. That China did all this bad stuff, right? And I see it among progressives all the time. They want so badly to... Um, they want so badly to ascribe negativity onto China, right? And that leads to a problem that I think other progressives have had or their leftists have had, anti-war leftists have had in terms of how you strategize, how you talk about politics, how you talk about China, especially in the new Cold War. I mean, there are some people who accuse me of saying, of uh, uh, essentially making China out to be perfect, so-called, right? Quote, unquote, perfect. But 
in reality, right, that's to me, I mean, that was never that was never true. Um, I think that as anti-war activists, anti-imperialists, we kind of have to understand what our duty is, right? And, and sometimes there's this fetishization of what a, what being an independent journalist or even a journalist, just say that term journalist is really all about, right? There's some kind of like idea that journalists are just arbiters of some kind of benign truth, some neutral truth, and that you have to talk about all sides, right? All sides all the time. And that's just 100% false. Journalism, just like anything else, is subject to class war, is subject to class politics, is subject to a class society. Journalism is not a neutral profession. uh, I mean, just the fact that we call it a profession in and of itself makes it non-neutral because professions, just like everything, first and foremost, are dictated by the dominant ideology because the dominant class is what dictates the dominant ideology. So if you understand how a class society works, if you understand how an imperialist society works, you understand that uh, journalism, right, is just one, at least if we're talking about movement politics, it's just one tool, one weapon, one arm of a broader movement, or at least that's how it should be. That if you're a people's journalist, then you are essentially promoting the politics and the analysis and the facts that people need to participate in that broader movement. And so it is not for me, it is not my job, although I will mention, right, that China, yes, just like any other country, China has problems and China is not shy about them. I always say this too. China is not shy about their problems, right? They don't hide them from the world. They don't say, oh, well, you know, we have uh, no corruption at all. They have an anti-corruption campaign. They don't say that their economy is 100% equal. They say we need to work toward common prosperity and address income inequality. They don't say that their environmental policy is perfect. That's why they invest so much in combating pollution and have made incredible progress doing so. That's why they make so much uh, investment in renewable energy so that they can bring down their carbon footprint. None of this is a secret, right? It's all policy in China. That doesn't make, and that, of course, doesn't make China perfect. It just means that China actually addresses the problems that are in front of it. And it does so because that's what socialist societies are supposed to do. Socialist societies are not, uh, are not, um, they're not communist societies. They're not pure societies. They're class societies. It just so happens that now the ruling class is the, is the people. Now the ruling class is the workers. It's the peasants. It's those who were stripped of that power under the prior order of semi-feudalism and capitalism, which is what existed in China prior to 1949. So it means that you inherit all of the old problems and you've got to resolve the old problems. Um, And it doesn't go linearly and it doesn't go exactly as you think it might go. But if you are organized and your principles are correct and you have a strong plan and you have a strong political leadership rooted in the people like China does, then you can, you can get pretty far. Um, so yeah. So, uh, and that's how, that's what China has done. So I I think Tiananmen square is kind of like one of these gotcha moments, right? Gotcha, China, Look at you, you know, you're not as good as people say you are. Of course, this is like the the human rights disasters of human rights disasters, so-called, because it's a quote-unquote massacre. But it wasn't. It wasn't a massacre at all. It, there was no massacre. Uh, there was violence outside of the protests, and that violence was in large part conducted by... Um, the forces backed by the outside. So with all that said, guys, I don't see anybody in the queue. I hope that it's working. I see some active people in the chat. 
but I don't see anyone in the queue. So I can respond to chat questions to, oh, it's Alexandros. I'll, I'll bring him in. Um, Alexandros, good to hear from you. You are the next caller. Hey, you can unmute yourself. I hope that this is working. Hi there. Yeah. Um, hey. Not sure if you can hear me. It's the first time I've used this app. <laughs> listening to you. Um, yeah, I was just there. Uh, was actually I was watching George earlier, George Galloway, and he talked about mm-hmm. you uh, being banned, and it sort of shocked me. And I <laughs> oh, that's really nice. <laughs> it's the usual. It's the usual. Didn't fit the narrative, but uh, just listening to you speak uh, about Tiananmen uh, Square, uh, Square narrative, uh, I can sort of echo exactly years ago when I first started looking into it, it was basically outside a French shop in and uh, as I personally ran the store next to me, he was actually a member of the Tiananmen protests, uh, and I was just talking to him how he came to England, he was came on asylum, and I said, I just mentioned, so what about killings, etc., and he just turned around to me and said, what killings? He said, you know, I was there for most of the most of the time, and he says I never saw any violence. Not one person died or anything. He said he heard rumours that there were down the side alleys there was violence, etc. But actually, on the square, he said we were just protesting for more socialism, basically. So the whole narrative that's been portrayed in by Western media just seems to be a cock and bull story, and. Uh, what you said earlier, what you wrote on Twitter is the basic truth. And I'm, I don't know, I don't know, it's just Twitter these days. I hope Mr. Musk can change something about that, but I won't hold my breath, even if he does acquire it. I think that's the nature of the narrative's being controlled at the moment. And uh, what you said about China, I mean, for anybody listening, I've been in China on and off for a good 10 years until COVID hit, and I can't return. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it has got its problems. It is not perfect, but, uh, it is striving to get that way. Yeah. I think that's all I've got to say for now. Well, thanks. I appreciate you coming in. Uh, you know, I know you've been following me, supporting me. I appreciate you coming by for that refreshing perspective. Unfortunately, I could only hear you out of one side. I don't know if that's my issue, or if that's an issue with the app, somebody was saying that they could hardly hear you, but uh, I could hear you, and I hope other people could um, talk about you know your experience and the Tiananmen Square incident has been so misinterpreted. How it was really uh, about you know, fighting for more than what had existed at that time and that China continues to progress. And as I said in my thread, that since this time, since the Tiananmen Square incident, China has only made even further strides and, of course, is not perfect. And it, it just has a lot of qualities that I think we can learn from. And I think that's one of the reasons I was talking about with Margaret Flowers on her podcast or she asks, is, is one of the reasons why China is attacked, especially right now, is it because of the threat of a good example? And it's, it, it, there's not even hesitation to, for me to say, yes, it is because of the threat of a good example. We can't leave that out when we talk about U.S. hostilities to, uh, to China or to really anyone else, right? Because they think about the key differences here in the way that the U.S. treats other countries, the, who are the countries that face the brunt of militarism. It's all countries charting their own course, charting their own destiny. Venezuela, Nicaragua, Eritrea, even Ethiopia, when it started to do even just a few things outside of the U.S.'s orbit. Um, Zimbabwe, during land reform, with the harsh sanctions, right? We can go on and on and on and on and on. Russia, of course, um, Viet, even Vietnam, right? There's a, a sank, there were sanctions on Vietnam all the way to the 1990s. 
And even as Vietnam has built a relationship with the United States, there's still a lot of tension, especially around how the United States is trying to get Vietnam to be kind of like a chip in the new Cold War and how it's not really working. So uh, uh, Cuba, of course. So we can go on and on and on about the countries that the United States targets with sanctions, with acts of war of various kinds. But we have to understand that it's because of a threat of a good example. And we need to place the new Cold War in that context. So uh, I, I was wondering if there's anyone else, anyone else that had wanted to to contribute. To, you know, if you have a question or comment. Okay, Eric is in the queue. I will bring Eric in now. If my phone won't freeze up here. Um, okay, you are the next caller, Eric. Hi. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Oh, good. Well, it's nice to say hi. I'm just out and about walking my dog, but <laughs> the topic really uh, interested me. And uh, so um, I mean, I've, I've seen your work and, and all that. Uh, so I think uh, thank you for having me on. I guess, um, you know, I, I was reflecting a little bit on this word, on the word tanky and literally where it came from. So it came from people who believed, you know, the, the, the accusation was that, well, you believed it was good for the tanks to come in and crush the... Uh, uh, you'll remind me which one it was. I believe it was the Hungarian, or was it the Czech uh, Revolution? You know? I think it was. I think it was the Hungarian. Uh, yes, I think yeah. so. But in any case, you know. Then later on, I saw some evidence, you know, that said, um, uh, well, you know, that was actually, you know, the CIA itself said, you know, in their secret documents, you know, they said that that was actually like a right-wing fascist coup that was, you know, that the that the Soviets intervened on. So it's kind of funny to think that. You know, because I don't necessarily, I, I don't self-identify as a tanky, but it would seem to me that I suppose by by the evidence of that, like uh, if I were to say, well, I suppose maybe that was interviewing on a right-wing coup, then, you know, people would call me that. So I don't know. I, I think that's a fun way to preface my thoughts on the Tiananmen Square massacre. But the big thing, I don't know, you know, because I've never, I've never really delved into the alternative case, or I suppose is what I would call it, you know, and as opposed to the, I guess, what, the official narrative, the American narrative, which is, I suppose... To sum it up, was just that people were peacefully protesting, and eventually the Chinese government had enough and just went, you know, hog wild of you know committing violence and stuff. But the big thing that I think it's very hard for people to think through is, you know, and uh, maybe you'd like to expand on this is like, what what do you think the American government would have done in an equivalent situation? So, um, uh, but anyways, that's just some thoughts I have because. You know, it's not like I'm willing to commit to... I'm not personally willing to commit to say that nothing horrible happened there, you know, um, in, in Tiananmen, I think, you know. These terrible things happen, but you have to consider... It's not moral relativism, but it is, you know, historic... It, it is making comparisons about, you know, how we know what we know and, um, you know, what is the proper um, comparison because... Um, and I, I also, I like I reflect on, you know, it was funny, um, I don't know if you noticed this, but, you know, I was trying to check out what was going on in Russia today when the initial Ukraine invasion happened, because I was going to, I was trying to see, you know, well, what's their party line going to be, and of course it's all about the dialectic, and I want to understand, but one of the th funny things was that they were running these sort of pieces about Hawaiian, Hawaiian independence activists, and I was thinking to myself, you know, I mean, it's not so far off a possibility, the idea of separatists being get, getting foreign support in, within the United States. And, you know, obviously Russia and China can try to find those people, you know, if they wanted to, you know, gum up the works and really complicate things the same way that, you know, America got back on in on itself. But, um, yeah, so anyways, uh, thanks for having me. And I guess I'll leave you to uh, respond to that. Yeah, well... I mean, Alexandros, a good corrective. I think it's both. I think the term tanky, actually, as you were referring to, definitely comes from both the Czech situation and the Hungarian situation, and they kind of built off each other. But, um, you know, with all the... I mean, I think what's so interesting is I shared a video of the tank man, right? The tank man uh, video, the full video. And at the end it had the NYPD during 2020 protests and how they behaved, right? Running over protesters. So, I mean, if there were, you know, 
thousands of protesters calling in, in, in a large section of them calling for regime change or calling for some sort of political change, which unfortunately, especially the, I would say the more Western oriented forces, they were calling for, uh, you know, change in government. Um, if that were to happen in the United States, I think that the violence would be very heavy given that that wasn't even what the Black Lives Matter protests were calling for. There wasn't really any like, let's overthrow the government mentality, although I'm sure there were a lot of anti-capitalist sentiments within it. I know that there were, because I know a lot of people participated in them, but that wasn't really a demand and that wasn't really even expressed in the activity. But yet, because there were some riots, because there were some rebellions, uh, pretty small in scale, the U.S. government, the military—I mean, the way that it was cracked down, especially on the peaceful protests, was absolutely—I mean, it was vicious. Um, it was—I mean, how many police vehicles ran over protesters in, in cities all over this country, especially in New York? So I think that's kind of an indication of how the United States responded to a similar situation. And then in terms of how we look at it, not you know, with the Tiananmen Square, the, the whole incident, the events that happened. I mean. When it comes to the violence that actually did occur, you know, it's hard because it was so, I think, I mean, first of all, if we understand China and how China's security forces work, even if you go there today in this modern era, post-war, post-war on terror, all of it, even the PLA that you see in the streets, which you don't see them very often, but you, you will see PLA uh, they do have a national division. The PLA is actually mostly for national security. It's almost kind of like the top brass of uh, police, so to speak. But they're not armed, generally. Generally, they're just, like, in uniform walking around. And that was the case during the Tiananmen Square incident. So there were a lot of soldiers who were, like, assaulted without any weapons and killed. And then China, I think, I mean, China responded and brought weapons and, and, you know, and there were clashes and people died in both, both, on both sides. And, you know, there are these really horrific photos of not just soldiers who had, were burnt up by uh, whatever. I don't even know what these, uh, I would call them more insurrectionists, uh, more kind of like rioters, what they were doing, but, um, and what they had. But um, nonetheless, yeah, there were deaths on both sides. So that's that's never good. And I don't think that there's pride in that. I don't think that there's, I mean, there isn't, right? Um, uh, there's a lot of remorse about it. It's a really dark day in China. It isn't really something, and this I think is both cultural and I think political. It's not something that there's a lot of appetite to revisit. Because not only was it like this flashpoint and a potential clash, like a color revolution kind of clash, but people died. You know, people, I mean, soldiers, unlike in the United States where soldiers are, like the police are kind of above society, soldiers in China are not seen, PLA is not seen as above society. I mean, these many of these folks are ordinary people. Most of the PLA, the vast majority of the PLA come from rural families, come from humble backgrounds it was like that since the revolution and so when you have hundreds of them killed and they're kind of like part of your social fabric it's not really uh something that is well um it's not something that people want to bring up i mean this has both cultural and i think political uh, ramifications and, and, and reasons behind it but um, but yeah, no, it, it was not a proud moment, but at the same time, one of the things that never talked about is the interference part of it, because this would not have happened in China without interference, without influence from the outside. This is why George Soros's, uh, reform and opening of China foundation, it was kicked out right after the protest. It's why, um, there were changes in communist party leadership right afterward, because there was, this threat of a color revolution that had to be addressed. And ever since then, especially in the modern era where color revolutions are just, you know, have just played such a negative role, 
in world affairs, now China is even more firm about this. And I think you know, that's the correct policy. And um, we, we really have to look at it from this frame because the way that these protests started out, it was not anything like what they would quote unquote become outside of the square, right? Outside of the square where the real violence and unrest was happening. It's very suspicious. Why would this violence occur outside of the square when people are protesting for their so for their supposed ideals there, right? Where that's the center of it. And it's supposed to be, you know, it's a, it's typical color revolution stuff. Look what happened in Maidan in Ukraine, Nicaragua, you know, there's so many examples, but even in Maidan, right? What was happening in Odessa? They, they burned the Nazis, burned a labor union building. I mean, this is a tactic, right? You infiltrate uh, protests, whether they're of a certain class character, whatever it is, infiltrate them, steer them, and then conduct other, you know, unconventional warfare tactics outside and around and maybe even in, in order to create the chaos that you need. So, so I think Tiananmen is, that's a big part of it. And we have to talk about that. We have to, and Twitter doesn't want me to. So Twitter doesn't want us to. So just be careful, guys. <laughs> Don't silence yourselves, but just understand that if you do, you may have some issues. Um, but I'm going to bring in Andrew. He may be the last caller. Um, Andrew, hi. Hey, Danny. How's it going? It's going. It's going. Yeah. I don't know. I wonder how many times you've been censored on Twitter and various social media. It's probably um, a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, I was. Uh, my question. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. Sorry, so sorry. I just muted because there was uh, some activity. Um, but no, continue. Oh, okay. Answer afterward. Right on. Yeah, my my questions are. Um, well, a couple. I, I would say, so I watched uh, Oliver Stone's uh, Ukraine on Fire documentary a few, I guess a month or so ago when it was taken off of YouTube um, or when it was taken down from wherever else it was. And I tend to like Oliver's documentaries. I think they're generally well done. I mean, some you know, even his cinematic movie, the Kennedy one, brought us the, the JFK Records Act, like an actual act in Congress that actually did some good. Um, but I did, I did think, I do think it's, um, important. And I think you did a good job just a second ago, the way you talk about color revolutions. I mean, they tend to be sort of piggybacked on top of an actual protest movement. Um, and I, I would, you know, I'm completely sympathetic to the argument. I understand that, uh, that the national endowment for democracy or the open societies foundation or other such quasi governmental organizations, can help to gin up these protests. But I think it's, I think it's fairly difficult to get them to come entirely out of nowhere. And that was the, that was really my only critique of uh, Ukraine on fire was um, a little bit of how they described color revolutions. They didn't really get into the fact that, um, you know, like, like even I've heard people describe basically, yeah, like the whole neoliberal capitalist period since uh, 91 in Ukraine has been, kind of especially bad. It's been bad for all the former Soviet states, but especially for Ukraine and there were legitimate grievances and then woven into that were these far right factions. So I just, I don't know, I guess if you have thoughts on that and then other thoughts about, you know, like you mentioned before, um, if, if, if the roles were reversed, how would people describe the pretty brutal police repression of protests in the United States? I mean, at protests I was at, we had, cops from our city and nearby cities going, you know, 50, 60 miles an hour down streets in, in ur- already busy urban areas towards the protests and then just kind of doing a donut and, and kind of spinning out right next to the people to intimidate us. And then we did have people killed um, by, you know, sort of vigilante violence attacking the protests that combined with the sort of some of the, um, you know, major, Christian churches in the United States are shedding um, members because of internet access. I think, I think a lot of it's internet access and, and information and the ability to converse with people um, I think is bringing people out of some of the more cloistered churches in the U S I mean, when that happens in, 
in China, it's sort of a similar process. Um, the U.S. and Radio Free Asia and all their other um, tools will will sort of in chorus say like, "Look, China is is suppressing these people's culture and religion." So, just thoughts about like how can we on you know honestly and without in inflaming tensions unnecessarily talk about color revolutions, um, and then also you know reverse the roles. It's uh, along the same line you were just mentioning um, about protests in the United States um, being, you know, far more repressive, police being far more militarized and armed. What about the sort of drop off in religions in China? How has that been used to kind of demonize them? Yeah, no, these are all very good questions. Um, you know, for me, I think for one, uh, I mean, if the, I mean, yeah, it, there is a lot of attention in China to what happened during the Black Lives Matter protests. And I think rightfully so, because there was so much hypocrisy. You mentioned people died. There was repression. There was, there's so, uh, I mean, it was just so stark. And if you participate in any of them, you saw it. You saw the heavy handedness of the police. You saw the very, um, troubling nature in which it felt you said vigilante forces it felt like there were a lot of forces involved all kind of coalescing to terrorize people who in the main 99.9 percent were peacefully protesting and the minority that was engaging in rebellion was mainly against property right it was not mainly against people so yeah i think that uh, what you're saying is correct is true and i in terms of the color revolution issue, I, it's a tough one. It, you know, I do respect Oliver Stone's work in the main. I think he does a good job. You know, he's a documentarian and he's someone who, even though he has a radical, I think, anti-war perspective, he's someone who's, I think he's been a liberal all of his life, right? And this isn't to disparage him. Many, most people are liberals. Uh, most leftists are liberals most of their lives. He comes from a certain uh, perspective. And... I think he does a good job talking about the U.S.'s insidious roles in a lot of things, but I think the color revolution is issue is very is very 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 complicated because it gets to I think a level of imperialist activity which has been demonized and almost disparaged as conspiracy, right? It gets to this level of sophistication about how imperialism works, which requires us to understand how imperialist state power is not just about guns. It's not just about tanks and bombs and all of that. It's not merely about that, but it's about hegemony. And it's about how the entire society the bottom to the top, from the economics to the politics, all of it are influenced to achieve a certain political and economic object objective to reproduce the relations of imperialism to domination of capital, U.S. capital, Western capital, and to do so through what I think was really popularized by the um by the um uh yeah popularized by the war on socialism by the by the cold war which was to destabilize um was no um destabilize hold on one second sorry about that so Yes, to destabilize, um, you know, destabilize countries, create chaos, and to, uh, yeah, to essentially change the geopolitics, the social order of things. Um, you know, it really is kind of a really... It, it's a complex political phenomenon that 
takes a lot from U.S. Army manuals and intelligence strategies of the Cold War, infiltrating and trying to emulate kind of socialist ideas and politics, right? Uh, some people call it, talk about the CIA's Congress of Cultural Freedom. It's even deeper than that. It even goes to counterinsurgency warfare tactics, things that were used during the Vietnam era a lot, the Phoenix program, right? Conducting torture, but doing so on this like anti-authoritarianism basis. And so it's really hard for people who are at all in the kind of camp of Western democracy, who have any belief in it and who have any loyalty to it, to talk about color revolutions because they all dress themselves up in the garb of liberty, democracy, freedom. And it, and that tends, right, this like Western exceptionalism, American exceptionalism, that tends to cover over the material reality of color revolutions, which is they happen to be uh, U.S. and Western orchestrated counterinsurgency warfare movements, which are meant to destroy and destabilize societies, uh, mainly societies that are sovereign, progressive, and or either oriented towards socialism or a part of a broader movement, which could or does lay the foundation for some kind of socialism. So that was, I mean, you know, you said a lot there, so I, I, I responded to what I could. Thanks, Andrew. Um, I am um, moving toward the end here. I've been on for, for quite some time. If there, you know, I don't know if there's one other person. There was some someone in the chat that had a question. Um, I think it was Murphy Mac said had a question about what can we emulate? No, it wasn't Murphy. It was Reese Cam. Uh, what there's some examples of China's good we could emulate from an individual citizen perspective. That's an interesting way of putting it in um, individual citizens perspective. Well, if we're talking about individualism, China has a very, even despite its relationship to the market, uh, China has a, and it's, you know, it has private consumer goods and I really, and when I say consumer goods, I'm not just talking about like buying toys at the store. I mean, we're talking about high tech. Now we're talking about, uh, you know, just a society that has a high, highly advanced commodity based system that is mainly private uh, with the commanding heights in under state control. So even with all of that, and that does breed individualism. I mean, you have a lot of people who are looking to have very lucrative careers in China, right? They want to be in business, in academia. They want to be in the professions. They want to be in high tech. They want to, you know, that is true. There's a lot of younger people who have that kind of mentality. But I think what we can take from China from an individual citizen's perspective, it's that despite Right, the I guess the new individualism that has been built up in China from the modernization of the country, there still is the capacity to hold the collective together as well. I think this is why they've had so much success with COVID nineteen, because people's careers, while important, doesn't supersede the society, and so we can learn from that in the sense that we can think about, well, what kind of organization, movement, vehicle do we need to get to a point where the masses of people in the main, especially those who are suffering from the ills of capitalism and imperialism and racism, will feel that the good of the society needs to be balanced with the good of the individual or that those two things need to go together. Uh, And I think the strength of the capacity to hold individualism and the collective together in China is really anchored by the Communist Party. It's anchored by strong party leadership that makes the plans, that consults with the people about the plans and about the policies, and carries them out and carries them forward. So there's a lot of, I think, comfort that is developed and a lot of trust that's developed 
when you know that you can go about your daily life and have 90 million people plus organizing themselves, organizing institutions, keeping things stable and focusing on goals and priorities and policies that are going to make your life better. So you do then say, well, yeah, I I think X, Y, Z policy is good for everybody. So uh, people will still support it despite having aspirations, right? Despite having aspirations. I mean, that's, I think socialism in a nutshell is that socialism doesn't destroy the individual. I think this is why people have a hard time calling China socialist because they think China socialism is just everyone's collective. Everyone shares equally. No, 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 no. Socialism is merely the social relationships have shifted that a revolution has occurred, changed social relationships and changed the nature and character of the economy. So it's oriented toward the public. It's oriented toward the people does not mean that it does not mean that the individual is erased from existence. It doesn't mean that their rights are inherently infringed upon. It does mean that certain individual rights that connote having, let's say, private ownership over commanding heights of the economy like uh, land, right? Yeah, no, no, no. People can no longer just uh, build up a business association buy land like landlords did and own over it and make all the decisions and wield it in the interests of them themselves. No, you can't do that, but you can live your daily life, meet your, try to meet your, you know, meet your needs and then aspire to what you want to do and what you want to be. And that's why you have, I mean, that's why you have such a, I think with the development of these productive forces, you've even had like, the development of extremely motivated individuals, talented individuals who want to, you know, achieve great heights in science and technology and math and all of the, you know, that's why China is kind of zoomed ahead in a lot of these areas. It's because there's a collective base, right? Like a, a, a socialist base that keeps people, uh, uh, you know, trust, you know, trustworthy, it keeps people having trust in the collective mindset, collective politics of socialism, while you have this market base, which motivates people to achieve increased productivity, increase um, innovation and all of this in order to better both the society and individuals. And that's, it's not a perfect thing because there are contradictions, right, between the individual and the collective and it's always a, a struggle, especially when you add in a, a global capitalist system that we live under. But nonetheless, it has achieved many things, and it's also caused problems which are now being addressed, right? A lot of policies around this common prosperity orientation now in China are oriented toward taking care of some of these maladies, right? For example, addiction to video games and children, uh, extreme uh, competitive culture in educational institutions, especially private ones, which kind of terrorize kids and force them to do things that are not healthy, like extreme amounts of work to the point where they're not getting any free time. So there's been laws put into place to ensure that kids have not only extended recesses, but also uh, uh, bans on giving homework for a certain number of days per week. All of these things are meant to ease the maladies that come from the market, that come from just building up the capacity of individuals within a society that is also oriented, that is oriented to taking care of the collective. So it's, it's, it's a complex process. It's one I personally wish we could have more hands-on understanding of uh, but unfortunately in the United States and in our in the West and wherever we happen to reside in the capitalist world the individualism is more of just an, like a byproduct of the complete and total utter domination of capital and uh, private profit in the interests of uh, of of the capitalist class so anyway well, it was really good. 
to talk to all of you. Um, sorry about the tech issues. I think there were some issues with my headset as well. I don't think it was plugged in all the way. So sorry about that. And also my phone kept on like freezing and all kinds of stuff. So I'm sorry about all that. But nonetheless, we got through it at the show. Love the participation. Really appreciate the participation. Uh, please do please do follow this podcast if you're new here. Follow it. Follow the podcast. Uh, make sure that you're following Cold War Brew. Follow me individually. Make sure I, I shared my Telegram already. Make sure you follow me there because I'm now banned on Twitter for seven days. And I think I've had it. You know, I think I need to diversify my... Uh, so, I, so I just put that in the chat, uh, Telegram. So uh, follow me there. You know, of course, the best place to support me is on Patreon. It's how you sustain this work at patreon.com slash Danny Haifong. You can find that on my profile here on Colin in the link in my bio. So with that said, guys, with that said, everyone, thanks so much. I've got to go. It's time. NBA finals are tonight. Um, So I, you know, I had fun today and I'll be back again in a week. Bye-bye, everyone.